The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 302. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. You get a free class. It's a great way to support the show because you can purchase classes there. I've got a lot for you, a lot of great stuff. So you purchase the class, you get a great class, but you also support the free part of it, which is the podcast. So go to mclanahanacademy.com, do that. Also go to brianmclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcasts going if you want to do it that way. You can go to anchor.fm, you can support the show there. There's a way to contribute financially to anchor.fm. All kinds of ways to support the show. You can get your book plates if you want my autograph on one of my books. You can purchase one of those. Great ways to do it. You can also click on that shop tab on brianmcclanahan.com, you get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. A little bit of that comes back to me. Most of it doesn't, but you get great stuff for it, too. So, I mean, I'm giving you stuff for a little bit of support, right? So, great ways to support the show. Also, please, if you like this podcast, share it around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. That does help expand and grow the audience. It's a tremendous honor to have you listen to this show, and I do appreciate it when you do go out and share it around. Share it around on social media. Let your friends know this is the best podcast out there. Hopefully it is one of your favorites. Um, also, send me requests you know, if, uh, if you want to hear something. I do like to, uh, to honor those and put those out there, too. And, of course, you can always go to Learn True History as well. Learn True, T-R-U-E-History.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods' Little Bit Classroom, so if you want to support the show, you can use that link as well to support the show. All right, let's talk about the show. We're in quarantine. Only nine states in the United States have not had a lockdown order. We're in quarantine now. Everyone's stuck at home. You can't go outside. You can't, well, you can, but uh, you're not supposed to be anywhere except the store, grocery store, pharmacy, wherever. We're, we're facing unprecedented times in the United States at least from a national perspective. Now, it doesn't mean this stuff hasn't happened before. I mean, you've had pandemics before and certain areas have locked things down and done things, but never like this, never at this at this scale have we seen this in American history. We've had this kind of lockdown. And uh, this is as I've this is a tremendous opportunity for think locally act locally. I I, I can't I can't emphasize that enough. And it's not to say this is a good thing. The lockdown is really hurting people. I mean, whether it's emotionally, financially, physically, mentally. I mean, this is hard on people um, because it's, 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 a, it's a, such a dramatic shift from what they're used to and things that are, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. But the revitalization of federalism out of this is just tremendous. And so I want to talk about two particular pieces. One was published at, in Bloom, at Bloomberg, 
it's a um, it's a piece from a law professor, a Yale law professor. Uh, and the other is a BuzzFeed piece that uh, looks at things a little differently as well. And I want to start with that piece because it gets into this idea of localism and the United States as a nation, a nation of people, where everything in this 48, lower 48, or even Hawaii and, and Alaska is yours. It's all yours. So this is what we tend to think. We go out and read the news, and what's happening in California, If oh my gosh, you see what's happening in California? I might live a 1,000 miles from that. Why does that matter to me? You see what's happening in New York? I might live a 1,000 miles from New York. Why does that really matter to me? Now, of course, you look at the connection and economies and everything else. I understand all that. But socially and physically or mentally, why should that really affect you, what's happening in some urban area that doesn't, it's not even close to you? Now, you should feel that impact if it's close to you. Do you see what's happening in this town next door to me? Well, that's close now. That's close to home. But you see, we've nationalized everything, so every crisis becomes a national crisis. Is that the case, though? I mean, do you need to use a chainsaw or a scalpel in these particular situations. And people have talked about this, how different countries have responded to things differently. Maybe they use a scalpel approach rather than a chainsaw to try to cut out the virus. It's a nasty virus. Nobody wants this thing. Nobody needs this thing. This thing needs to go away. It's causing all kinds of problems. Of course, health problems for a lot of people, tragically. It's horrible. We want it gone. But the approach, does it need to be a chainsaw or a scalpel or a sledgehammer or a ball-peen hammer? I mean, what do we have to do to try to get this thing out of here? And so you look at what people did. If they're in an area that's going to be quarantined, well, they tried to escape it. And they tried to escape it by going to rural areas. Now, uh, I grew up in a rural area in Delaware. Um, from the time I was 10 until I finally left home after after college, grad school. And um, it's, a, it's a rural area, but it's also a tourist area. And the funny, the in, funny interesting thing about this is that the um, the area, this, this county, there's only three counties in Delaware. This rural county shouldn't have as many coronavirus cases as the northernmost county, which is Newcastle County. I grew up in Sussex County. Newcastle County should have a lot more cases. It's right on the border of Philadelphia. It's, it's right on the border of New Jersey. I mean, it's it's right there where you know you're you're going to get these you're going to get urbanites in that area, Wilmington. But Sussex County has a lot of cases. You want to know why? Because a few weeks back. They hadn't closed down their beaches. They hadn't closed down anything. And all the tourists came in from New York and New Jersey. And lo and behold, Sussex County, Delaware, has a rapidly growing set of coronavirus cases because all these people from New York and New Jersey brought it in. And so what the state of Delaware now has decided to do is they're going to stop the state police. Delaware has some They've abolished local, essentially local. I mean, you can still have town, city police, but the sheriffs are gone. State police kind of run the entire situation in Delaware. 
But the state police have been given a directive. If you see an out-of-state car, pull it over, unless it's on the interstate up near Wilmington. But if you're in Dover and you've got a car from New York, they're allowed to pull it over and say, hey, what are you doing here? And if you're if you're here and you're not just passing through, you need to be quarantined for 14 days or you need to go home. This is local action at its finest. But I, this piece that I'm going to get into... Th- it's by Anne Helen Peterson. Uh, it's a long piece, so I'm not going to read all of it because I want to get into this other piece by this law professor because I want to talk about the legality of all of this. This particular piece, uh, the title is, This Pandemic is Not Your Vacation. So see, a lot of people went to escape. They went from New York, New Jersey, urban areas, Philadelphia, East Coast areas, wherever it was, or maybe major metropolitan areas in California or uh, in in uh, the Midwest, and they're looking to get out of those areas to go to a rural area because they want to get away from it. It's, it's natural, but this is a very localistic piece because she's saying, that, look, you're, you're not going to bring your coronavirus to us. You're going to destroy our area. So it's interesting. She says, uh, quote, wealth is the vector. That's what sociologist Therese McMillan Cottom tweeted last week in reference to the spread of COVID-19 across both the globe and the United States. Wealth is not the cause of every concentrated outbreak dotting the United States, but the common denominator of so much of it spread outside of major urban areas. It's the reason why so many of the coronavirus hotspots in the Mountain West, Sun Valley, Idaho, Gunnison County, Colorado, Summit County, Utah, Gallatin County, Montana, overlap with winter playgrounds for the wealthy. So see, they're looking at this as a socioeconomic situation. The wealthy brought it in. No, no, no. It's tourism. It's outside. I mean, so they're getting they're looking at this from a Marxist perspective in many ways. It's wealth. It's wealth. It's privilege. It's bringing the coronavirus to all those saps out here. No. It's this idea of nationalism that's actually doing it. The virus travels via people, and the people who travel the most, both domestically and internationally, are rich people. I mean, that's just rich. You're saying that a family of four can't go on a vacation skiing. Maybe they're big skiers, and they want to go skiing. And they're they're not rich necessarily, but they saved up a little money. They were able to go on a vacation to, uh, to Montana or Colorado or somewhere, Idaho, to go skiing. Doesn't necessarily mean they're wealthy. A party in the Tony Bedroom community of Westport, Connecticut, all the way back on March 5th, became what one uh, disease specialist referred to as a super-spreading event. With infected attendees dispersing throughout Connecticut and New England and one partygoer falling ill on a plane ride back to South Africa. In Idaho's Blaine County, home to Sun Valley, more than half of the residential properties are second homes or rental properties, and more than 30,000 people fly into the regional airport during ski season alone. As of March 31st, 187 people in the county of 22,000 have tested positive, including two local emergency room, including local emergency room physician Brett Russell. Two people have died. The town's small hospital has two ICU beds and a single ventilator. People come here from all over the world, Russell told the Idaho statesman, especially this time of year. When I'm in the ER, I get people from New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Seattle. Every week there's people from those places. Most likely someone from an urban area or multiple people from urban areas come here and they just set it off. Here it is. 
It's this idea that these urban areas, and this is where I've, I mean, it's the local against the urban. It's the Jeffersonian against the, the urban. I mean, this is where all this stuff comes from. It's very interesting how this Jeffersonian solution to America, and this is why um, I've, uh, I've given out a free book before, The Jeffersonian Solution. It's the Jeffersonian Solution. What the problem is, here, urban areas going out and spreading these, these urbanites coming from these places to areas that they don't belong. Now, if you, you could, on the other hand, you could say, well, these places wouldn't exist if it wasn't for people flying in. Okay, I understand that. I mean, there's this economy to it. But certainly, this is, this is an external problem. It's an external problem. She continues, all over the United States, people are fleeing urban areas with high infection rates for the, for the perceived safety and natural beauty of rural areas. Some of them own second homes in those areas. Others are paying upwards of $10,000 a month, depending on the area, for temporary housing. The common denominator among these populations is, again, wealthy. They're their own or their families. They can flee the city because their jobs can be done remotely or they don't work at all. They either had a vacation house already or they can afford to fork over what amounts to a second rent or second mortgage. Not everyone leaving a big city because of the pandemic is heading for a vacation home. Many people with mobile jobs are relocating to stay with family in suburban and rural hometowns. Many of the rural places that will eventually be hardest hit by the coronavirus are not upscale ski and beach towns, but small and often poor communities that have no tourist economy or any of the infrastructure that comes with it. The resort areas see an influx of potentially virus-carrying city dwellers now are a kind of Canary in the coal mine, a preview of how desperately overwhelmed rural areas across the country will be by the coronavirus whenever it arrives. From the coast of Maine to the north shore of Lake Superior, hundreds of thousands of people have either already arrived or are scrambling to find vacant rentals. Some are taking precautions when they leave their primary dwellings, fully isolating themselves for 14 days or more in their new temporary towns, as the White House has recommended for anyone leaving New York City, but many presumably not. Sheriff deputies at a checkpoint on US-1 leading into the Florida Keys in Florida City, Florida, March 27th. This is a picture of it. Monroe County administrators made a decision to prohibit tourists and only allow property owners and people to work in the Keys to pass through the roadblocks. For now, in the absence of any clear federal guidelines restricting domestic travel, residents in many small towns across the U.S. are drafting their own ad hoc policies for outside visitors. Well, who needs federal guidelines? I mean, this is, again, nationalism as the disease it's as bad as the pandemic itself. These towns can do these things all they want. In fact, that's what I'm going to talk about when I get into the legal aspect of this. Draw up your own restrictions. Say you can't be here if you're from outside this town. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. If you're listening to this and you're interested, get your city council, get your town to say, no outsiders. Stay out. We don't want you here. We don't need you here. Because if you didn't have any cases in your town and you had no outsiders, the chances of you getting coronavirus are about zero. Not necessarily you could get it. I mean, there could be a way you could get there. I mean, nobody knows exactly. But your chances are extremely low. If you had no outsiders, why should you need to be shut down at all? At all. If you shut down the outsiders, well then... There's no reason to shut down your life. In a county outside of Portland, there are signs spray-painted with stay out, locals only, posted around town. Great. I love Portland for that. One resident told me the community members will follow around any car they don't recognize that enters the neighborhood. 
The local hardware store is also offering free toilet paper with the purchase of a firearm at a small backwoods inn on the banks of the... Backwoods. It's always backwoods for these urbanites. At a small backwoods inn on the banks of the Rogue River in Oregon, 200 miles from the nearest hospital, the owner told me that even with a no-vacancy sign-up and the local restaurant closed down, she still had people knocking on the door looking for a long-term place to stay. In Dare County, North Carolina, the Outer Banks, police have set up a checkpoint to turn back anyone, even a second homeowner who's not a full-time resident. The tiny island of North Haven, Maine, has banned all visitors, including people who own property, while locals there tried to forcibly quarantine three people by downing a tree across their street because their car had out-of-state plates. Marfa, Texas, like dozens of other vacation spots across the the country, the local government has requested that all short-term rentals be shut down. But locals I spoke to in Marfa and in towns across the West suspect that people are still renting under the table or have simply transformed their Airbnbs into three- to four-month furnished rentals and are listing them on Zillow, Craigslist, and Facebook community pages instead. In Montana, where I live, state residents have been officially advised to shelter in place, but short-term rentals have not yet been restricted. So, I mean, this is an interesting piece and I, and I because I want to get in the legal part of it I'm not going to read the rest it's a 20 minute read but she's pointing out the issue here I mean it's it's the same thing you know she continues at the end and some of these places particularly in northern states like Michigan Montana and Idaho with abundant natural resources of water have already been identified as places to retreat from the effects of climate change rural communities are going to see an uptick outside of the coronavirus, of people buying property in second homes as a refuge from climate change. <laughs> and it's the same thing in the, with the so-called coronavirus refuge refugee. People are thinking, where do we want to be in a disaster situation? Where is the most safe? The answer to them are these rural places. I mean, this is, this is actually a wonderful, in some ways, people are rethinking what it means to live in America. They're rethinking what it means to be an American. This Jeffersonian tradition is being revitalized by this thing. And I, I've mentioned that before. Think locally, act locally is becoming the the vote. I mean, look, everybody needs to get a think locally, act locally shirt now and wear it around all over the place. I mean, this is what's happening. People are now saying, think locally, act locally. We're going to take care of our own. We're going to keep the outsiders out. We're going to do what we want to do. And we're not going to let these people in. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, if people had been listening to this podcast, if I had already had millions of listeners, this would have been the case before the coronavirus even hit. People have already been doing these things. Now, the question is, is all of this legal? And so I'm going to take a break, get back on the other side. We'll talk about the legality of all this. We'll continue on the show. I'll see you in a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there. 
and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 the present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum. Or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll. And I'll see you there. All right, we're back. Let's wrap up this particular episode of the Brian McClanahan Show talking about this movement for the local. I mentioned that piece on BuzzFeed about uh, how locals are getting irritated with outsiders coming in. They're trying to block all of this stuff. And how people are becoming aware of these things and they're following around out-of-state license plates and all the block, putting trees down the road, doing all kinds of things to block the outsiders, trying to prevent people from coming in and bringing coronavirus to their town from New York, New Jersey, Washington, California, wherever it is, they're trying to prevent it. Montana, Idaho, the beaches, the natural spaces. They're trying to prevent people from doing these things. So the question is, and I think this is a valid question, is... Is this legal? Is this legal? And so I want to focus on a piece of Bloomberg from a Yale law professor. And I don't have his name here. Uh, I didn't write his name down. Excuse me for that. But he is a professor at Yale. And the title of the piece is, is, in case you were wondering, it's legal to close state borders. In case you were wondering, it's legal to close state borders. So this is a short piece, so I want to focus on it here for a couple of minutes, and he, he begins, as national travel bans and local restrictions aimed at curtailing the spread of COVID-19 pile up, including an order for California residents to shelter in place, it's time to ask whether bans on interstate travel will be lawful. In particular, if a state can order its own residents to stay indoors, can it order residents of other states to stay away? Can a state close its borders? So there's the question, and some somebody's going to challenge this. I want to go in from this state to this state, and you can't stop me. Now, when you look at the Constitution, and I'm just going to say this from the beginning, and then, I'll, and then I'll address what he says here, because he's looking at this as a law professor in case law, okay? But let's look at it from a constitutional standpoint. There's nothing in the U.S. Constitution in Article 1, Section 10, that prohibits a state from closing its borders. Those are the only things the U.S. Constitution prohibits the state from doing, Article 1, Section 10. Now, the only argument you can make against this is the Privileges and Immunities Clause in the 14th Amendment, or perhaps in the Constitution itself, that citizens have to be given the same privileges and immunities as citizens from the other states, which would, uh, which would in some ways, if you look at Bushrod Washington and how he described this, this is just about everything under the sun. But if you have a shelter-in-place order in your state, that means your citizens are already locked down. That, that means somebody from another state can't come in and sojourn there or do anything they want. Or if your state's not locked down, but their state is, why are they not locked down as well? You see, 
So we're getting into some of these very sticky, I think, in some ways. The only argument I could see to be made for this is this thing is unconstitutional if you look at the Privileges and Immunities Clause. But the states certainly, because of the nature of the states, there's nothing prohibiting a state from closing down its borders and saying we're not letting you in. It's not the the interstate commerce part of this doesn't fit here because, I mean, this is this is the danger of that where everybody, every individual, if they just walk into a state is, is conducting commerce. This is what happened in the 1950s and 60s during the civil rights movement. And I understand why it was done because the object was to try to prevent segregation. But the aftermath of that, the the extension of that is things like this. Well, because I walk into a state, I'm committing commerce. Therefore, I as an individual committing interstate commerce, you can't prohibit me from doing this. It's a bad argument. It creates, opens up a whole can of worms and a whole other, a lot of other ways. So the the positive that you get out of it in ending uh, this, and ending segregation is going to create several negatives on the other side. So we have to weigh these things out. Um, but regardless, I mean, this is this is the only argument that can be made for this. And so if I drive my car into a state, I mean, am I, am I conducting interstate commerce? Or is the interstate commerce clause really supposed to be for things like a state can't put a tariff up on another state? I mean, this is what was intended. Not that there's somehow, you know, if you just walk into a state, it's so that the state of... You know, Maryland couldn't put a tariff on the state of Virginia. That was the entire intent. It was to have a free economic zone looking at state law when it came to it came to trade between states. This is not trade. This is not trade at all. Now, of course, a lot of this, as I just mentioned, the last piece has to get into rentals. So now is this getting into a civil rights violation? I mean, this is the only way you could attack this thing based on case law. But this law professor says, hey, it's 100% legal. So let me continue. I'm not saying this would be a good idea, but the scholar in me can't, can't help pondering its legality. Imagine two neighboring states, state A and state B. Suppose the coronavirus is rampant in state A, but rare in state B. Can state B, in an effort to protect its citizens, tell the people of state A that they're not welcome? Many legal scholars will reply it's that it's unconstitutional for one state to close its border with another. But in the case of declared public health emergency, would they be right? The question may not be as crazy as it sounds. Governors across the country are taking stronger steps than the federal government. And a new Wall Street Journal NBC News poll finds that 75% of respondents have faith in their state governments to deal with the virus, compared to with 62% who have faith in the federal government. Only half who have faith in President Donald Trump. This is wonderful. We're thinking about local again. Just think locally, act locally. We love our state. We hate the federal government. I mean, this is a beautiful result of this particular problem. The problem's awful, but people thinking about things differently now. They're thinking out of the box. And I thought this would happen. These numbers suggest that although we tend to think of travel bans as something imposed at the national level, people might well support local officials who acted on their own. Well, travel bans can be. I mean, I've mentioned on this podcast... The states can close down airports. They can close down roads. They own them. They can say, you can't drive on this road. They can do anything they want. The question is of manpower and other things. Do they really want to do that? But they can certainly do it. Now, the professor continues, we've been down this road before. During the yellow fever outbreak of the late 19th century, many local governments responded to raising, to I'm sorry, rising public fear by sealing their borders. A practice headlines of the day called shotgun quarantine. Although the disease is actually spread by mosquitoes, popular belief at the time held that the villain was personal contact. 
Armed patrols began to appear in relatively unaffected areas, take tasks with keeping out refugees from states or towns where yellow fever was endemic. The patrollers are not vigilantes. As a legal scholar Polly J. Price has shown in an admirable paper, the armed bands had usually been deputized by state or municipal authorities for this very purpose. In short, local governments themselves were the ones sealing their borders. I applaud this. I mean, maybe we need more of this. Deputize people and get them out there and saying, you can't come in here. Stay out. Locals only. In 1900, the U.S. Supreme Court had the chance to address the legality of these actions when Louisiana accused neighboring Texas of using yellow fever as a pretext to close its borders when, in truth, the rules were intended to protect local businesses from competition. The justices dismissed the case on other grounds and have not touched the subject since. Nevertheless, the precedent suggests that one state might well possess the power to seal its borders against another. For although the courts have long held that the Constitution protects the right to travel, including from one state to another, that freedom has been subject to considerable caveat, articulated by Chief Justice Earl Warren in the Supreme Court's 1965 decision in Zemel v. Russ. So here's Earl Warren saying, well, wait a second here, uh, I don't know about this. I don't know about this at all. Quote, but the freedom does not mean that areas ravaged by flood, fire, or pestilence cannot be quarantined when it can be demonstrated that unlimited travel to that area would directly and materially interfere with the safety and welfare of the area or the nation as a whole. This is why we don't need to rely on the Supreme Court, just as an aside. I mean, the Warren Court is awful. And to rely on the Supreme Court to decide what we're going to do or not do, I mean, it's just complete lunacy in many ways. But that's what we do. Here, the local should be shutting these things down. The state should be shutting these things down. This passage, along with similar language in other cases, is often pointed to as the authority for orders by national or local health officials requiring that a contagious person or persons be quarantined. Even the American Civil Liberties Union conceded in a 2008 report that interstate travel may be restricted when there is a direct threat of disease. Specifically, in a pandemic, governments may either impose broad bans on travel or seek to prohibit travel only by individuals who are thought to pose a high risk. So, the question of legality is coming down to, yes, it's 100% legal. And from a federalism standpoint, it's always been legal. We don't need the Supreme Court to tell us that. There's nothing prohibited by it in Article 1, Section 10. Go read it. There's nothing there that says a state can't close down its borders. Now, I know that you know the, the general government with the Commerce Clause to regulate interstate commerce. But again, are we talking about commerce? It's travel commerce. Only if you look at it in terms of staying at a hotel or something. But is it? This is the only area I think you could challenge this particular part of these responses from local governments. Is that, well, you can't do this because you're violating my right to travel. This is discrimination. You're discriminating against me on the basis of my state, where I'm from. The Privileges and Immunities Clause is being violated here. I mean, this is the only way I think you could do it. But when you look at public health, and this is where you have liberty, individual liberty, and then community liberty, and see how do we wrestle out these different versions of liberty? I mean, all these things, it's very philosophical in many ways, if you think about it. But there's also this constitutional argument in this. Given the current national mood, the piece continues, it's easy to imagine a court applying similar logic should one state impose a, low, a broad ban, excluding the residents of another on public health grounds. Consider the way many localities 
have had to be dragged kicking and screaming to close their public schools to move a to move long a move long understood by researchers to be perhaps the single most effective way for slowing the spread of a contagion. If State A swiftly closes its schools while State B dithers, it's easy to see why residents of State A might be uneasy around residents of State B. Well, there's lots of other reasons, too. So the piece continues. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating such measures. Of course not. You can't do that because you teach at Yale. So to say this, I mean, you'd be embracing complete Think locally, act locally, and that's going to be against what you have to do. I don't believe closing state borders would be either useful or wise. Experts have long been skeptical of tra- travel bans do much good. Computer in- simulations, computer simulations, I mean, of course, because computer simulations are always right. Teach us, as should common sense, that any restriction on movement within a country will be effective only if done early, and even then the effect will be moderate at best. The models also show that in predicting the spread of a pandemic, the choice of a particular strategy is less important than acting swiftly. In other words, whatever a government decides to do, it ought to do fast. So though I think the authority of a state to seal its borders might well be uphold, upheld by the courts, I also think it's a bad idea that would in any case be arriving far too late. Still, no elected official likes to sit around seeming to do nothing. Governors are running out of new emergency measures to announce. I hope none of them tries this one, but given the na- nation's current mood, one never knows. Now, um, I, I hope governors do try this one. I mean, I hope this is something that we actually talk about. Now, you don't have to seal it out for, say, trucks coming in or you know, supplies, things like that. But, I mean, there should be a reason why people are coming into your state. There should be a reason. I mean, this piece that we talked about in the first part, if you, if you have family there, maybe you go in, but you're, you're quarantined. These are things people should actually be thinking about. Not just, oh, yeah, willy-nilly, we're going to do whatever we want, doesn't matter. These are things that would help prevent, if you have a hot spot like New York, people from New York should be quarantined in New York or New Jersey or a hot spot area, New Orleans. They should be quarantined in these areas and not let them spread out to other parts where they're going to bring the virus. The piece before is completely in line with this. You had hot spots popping up in these tourist areas. Why? Because people from other states and other areas that have the virus are now coming in. I mean, it's amazing how these two pieces work together. And it's all think locally, act locally. Take care of yourself. When I talked about the coronavirus in several episodes, there was one I did where I called it coronavirus. In this piece, you can't, it, I can't monetize it on YouTube for some reason. People are upset because I said something about you know international trade and other things that can cause problems with this. Oh my gosh, how can you say these things? Well, because you want to stop pandemics. You don't do as much. You try to have as much of a local economy as possible. I mean, it's it's just common sense. It's logical. But no, people don't like to hear these things. So, wonderful pieces. Both work together. Both are wrong in some areas. But still, very good pieces looking at a, a big issue and a problematic issue. And that's why I wanted to cover them in this episode. So, everyone out there, stay safe. Do what you can. Stay local. Stay within yourselves. Don't, I mean, try to stay at home as much as possible. Do those things. Stay healthy. And um, continue to spread this message of think locally, act locally. By the way, if you go to my shop, I have shirts now that just say think local, think locally, act locally. It doesn't even have my logo on it. It's just that phrase. So just do that. Put it on your, put it a bumper sticker on there. I have shirts, bumper stickers, all kinds of cool stuff with think locally, act locally on it. I mean, it's off. It's awesome. So get those too. That also supports the show. 
doesn't have my name on it or anything, but it's a great message, great motto. All right. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>